Well, I've, we've got a, uh, a few questions uh, that were in the box, um, but um, there'll probably be time for some others from the from the floor if you'd like that. Um, we'll see how we go. Um, so this is a quick one to begin with. Are the sermons you give at Benedictus publicly available? If so, how do we access them? Um, yes, they are, and they're on the Benedictus website. Um, so our website is www.benedictus, so B-E-N-E-D-I-C-T-U-S, benedictus.com.au. So each week um, I put up the reflection for that week, um, and there are some, sometimes if I do a talk somewhere else, um, they also go up on the website under another link. So. Um, you might like to explore and it's lovely to think of having an extended community so you're very welcome to um <laughs> yeah well i know that's the problem never an unpublished thought which means that they you will recognize some of them reappearing so <laughs> don't expect rampant originality every week um, um so uh Regarding the story of the conversion of St. Paul, I'm wondering if it is, if it is, or how it is possible to live contemplatively with a thorn in the side. That's a really great question. Um, Is that um, prayer that many of you will know by, uh, I think it's by um, Reinhold Niebuhr, the American theologian, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, and I guess that comes to mind because sometimes a thorn in the side might be being a thorn in the side because it's a sign that there is something that isn't quite integrated or reconciled or some further freedom that you're invited into and you know and 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 that maybe that's something to pay attention to in terms mm. of removing the thorn <laughs> in the side um, but but then there are other things that that can't can't be removed, you know. Um, a certain illness, um, something that happened in our childhood that can't be undone. Um, the suffering of someone we love, you know. There are things that we just, you know, we can't change, and we um, we need to accept. And I think with. Well, I think contemplation helps both with the um, discerning the difference, um, even though perhaps that takes some, some time and some discernment because there are things that aren't obvious, um, whether there's something that I can change or whether there's something I just need to live with. You know, there are situations like that. Um, but where it is something I, that we, we have to accept, we have to live with, um, that 
will remain at some level a grief or um, a pain, then I, I do think the contemplative practice can can help us in the first instance be with. I mean, I think our first instinct when when something is painful in whatever way is we resist it. Like that's the that's the natural human um, response, isn't it? We resist um, somehow. If it is going to be something we have to live with, um, the journey is a journey of seeking to befriend it, um, to kind of uh, be tender with it, um, not to see it as alien to ourselves, but as somehow this is part mm. of the story of my life, and this is this is it, and. Uh, I remember in my life a, a breakthrough happened when I was resisting something in my life and, you know, really <clears throat> resisting and spent a lot of energy resisting this thing, um, wishing it weren't like that. And I suddenly had this realisation that um, whether or not this, this, you know, I get what I want in this situation... No one else in the history of the world will ever have my life to lead. Like, I am the only one who will ever live this life. And there was something really liberating about that because it was like, okay, this is my life. <laughs> um, and only I can live this life. And I think that uh, the contemplative helps us to um, deepen that practice of being with the whole of it. Um, and I think the, the more we can be not resisting, the less overtly painful our suffering is. Um, somehow it, it grabs us less or it, it, it has less power. If we're resisting, we're giving it a lot of power all the time. If we can befriend it, let it be, it's more likely to let us be. And so I, I guess those, those are things um, that, that I would say. Richard Raw makes a distinction between necessary suffering and neurotic suffering. Um, and, and I think this is a Buddhist distinction as well. You know, there are things we can't avoid and we just, we undergo them. We, we have to be with them as best we can. But then there's another layer of suffering we can impose over the top of the necessary suffering, which is the suffering which says, I don't want it to be like this. And that, that causes more suffering. That's, that's the piece we can perhaps begin to let go of. And that's, that's where can, contemplation can help. Um, there are many paths to God. Please, what is the unique gift of Jesus, the Christ, in your words, that distinguishes Christianity from other religions? <laughs> Surely we're due to finish. <laughs> 
um, again, a wonderful question. Um, I think it is that sense of in the person of Jesus, God shares our life. Um, so it's incarnation. Um, I'm I'm very much influenced. Um, in some of my theology by the Catholic theologian, theologian James Allison. I don't know if you've come across... You gave the job being similar. Yeah. James Allison. Um, he, he offers a way of understanding how it is that um, that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus liberates us or saves us, we use that language, which which gets us out of the the story that many of us kind of grew up with, which is God created the world and it was very good, and then human beings did the wrong thing, and so then we needed to be punished. So God sent Jesus to bear our punishment so that God would like us again. You know, like that story of atonement and salvation that somehow Jesus bears our punishment. And Alison um, Alison speaks about Jesus as at one level, yes, bearing our punishment. But it's the punishment that we meet out, not that God meets out. Um, and so he he talks about the way in which um, the the natural human way of managing, of creating peace, of establishing a kind of a community that can be together, is usually by defining itself over against what is not it, like another community or you know this is my tribe and you're not my tribe or this is my religion you're not my religion or you know this is the in group in the school playground and you're not in it because you're the you know you're the not cool kid um you're you have the wrong pair of jeans you're out um all of those ways in which we establish communities of a certain kind of peace and cohesion but we establish them on the back of those who are excluded and this is this is at heart a scapegoat mechanism. So so there's a bit of um, trouble that we have of, of cohering together and of living together. So how do we secure our peace? Well, what we do is we gang up on some other group, and that makes us feel strong and together. And these other people get sacrificed. And you can see that all you know the, the kind of major historical examples of that in Nazi Germany, for example, where a whole people is scapegoated. Um, you can see it all the time in the rhetoric about immigrants or um, 
you know, asylum seekers or whatever it is, um, this establishing of an in-group at the expense of an out-group. And in the, in the religion of Jesus' day, that's happening. There's a, there's a kind of chosen people who, who are, you know, they, they're defined by certain codes of belonging, and then there are all those who are not chosen, who are on the outside, who are deemed somehow religiously suspect or legally suspect or impure, and so they get to be on the outside and everyone else secures their righteousness and their belonging because they're not that. It's, it's that, that prayer of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke's Gospel, you know, I thank God that I'm not like other men. <laughs> um, this is, and, and what he says is that um, this isn't about Ju- Judaism versus Christianity, by the way. This is about a, a, a particular legalistic form of religion which happened happens naturally in any human gathering. Um, so what, what Jesus does is consistently identify with the person who's on the wrong side of that bargain. Mm-hmm. Jesus consistently identifies with the outsider, you know, with the leper or with the woman with the hemorrhage or the whatever. And that's pretty threatening for the establishment because you've got this person who kind of looks like they've got some you know, some authority and they're connected to the power of God and yet they're on the wrong side of the bargain all the time. And so, well, what are we going to do about that? We better get rid of him too. We, you know, so, and, and so this whole idea that Jesus kind of becomes the target of this animosity because he's causing disruption within the in-group because people aren't quite sure how to take him um, and we'll secure our cohesion again over against this person who we're going to cast out. And there's this, um, there's a, it's like a crystalline statement of this in John's Gospel where, you know, John has Caiaphas, the high priest, say, um, you, you, you understand nothing. You do not understand it is better that one man be sacrificed um, than that the whole people perish. It's the classic statement of the scapegoat mechanism. But what Jesus, most of us, if we're on the wrong side of that mechanism, will do almost anything we can not to be. We'll, we, <laughs> we don't like being in that place of exclusion and cast outness and shame and we want to belong and we, we go into that place kicking and screaming. What, what Jesus does, it seems, is to kind of see this, see this whole dynamic, this whole mechanism for what it is. And he goes into what Alison calls the place of shame willingly. He consents. He doesn't particularly like it. You know, Father, if it be your will, you know, if if this cup could pass from me, that would be kind of good from my point of view. Um, But but nevertheless, he consents. He He goes into it. He undergoes this place of shame and this... Which is not just, I mean, it is the crucifixion, is the death, but it's also a kind of annihilation of identity and of, of righteousness. He's deemed a sinner. There's, there's no sense in which he feels heroic about this. It's, it's, it really is the place of shame. And he really does undergo that because on the cross he's not answered. So he doesn't... It's, it's, you know, at least it's partly portrayed, doesn't even have the consolation of being 
knowing for sure this is of God, you know, that this isn't just, maybe this is totally futile. And in the resurrection, when he returns, he returns as the person who has undergone that death at every level, physical, um, religious, um, social, not seeking vengeance, not seeking punishment, but, but coming out of that larger reality of love and acceptance. And I think the liberation that the disciples undergo is, first of all, they see what they've been part of. They see, they see the mechanism of this system and that they, even if they didn't actively participate, they at least colluded with it because they were frightened and they didn't want to get on the wrong end of the system and they didn't want to get lynched and you know so they pretended they didn't know him or they hid in an upper room or so they've kind of colluded with the system jesus comes back and 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 they realize they can see this violent self-justifying system and that it's not actually the whole truth that god is bigger than that so this is an account of redemption or salvation which is about being liberated from the ways of being we have which secure ourselves over against one another. And, and it leads directly into this sense that the church is a universal community. It, it, not in the sense that we're a universal coloniser but in the sense that there is, we don't need... There's no need to secure your identity over against the people who aren't in it. By definition, everyone is invited to belong. There's no, there's no boundary of in and out. That's what it means to say the church is universal. It's a theological statement. It's not a statement of world domination. <laughs> um, this is long-winded, I know, I'm sorry. But, but I guess part of what I seems to me is the unique gift of Jesus, which is the question we were asked, I was asked to respond to, is that somehow in this person of Christ, the life of God has so broken into our world and so lived our life and, and in, in a sense undergone the worst of our life that it's broken it open for the rest of us. We no longer have to live trapped by that fear of whether we're in, whether we're out, whether we really belong. Our belonging is given. Our belonging is grace. That's salvation. And it's hard to imagine that, ex that, that a, a person starting where we are formed as we are necessarily in this over against identity that any one of us could have done that you know could have entered into that space and broken it open for the rest of us so i think it's out of that experience that that the language the of jesus as lord begins to emerge remember we because we read the gospels from birth to death we think okay well that happened and that happened, you know like it's a newspaper report but the gospels are written in the light of the resurrection you know, they're, they're written in the light of what's happened and in the light of that, there's this sense of God has been here. You know, the, the life of God has been among us and 
And that's the only power that could have broken, broken this system open. So that's, I guess that's, that's how I see it. Um, I think there are in other religious traditions, and Alison certainly points out that in the, in the Jewish tradition, there are glimpses of this understanding of, of the scapegoat mechanism and that, it, that it's not what God's about. You think of the number of psalms in which the person in the psalm is lamenting, they're gathered around me like the fat bulls of Bashan. They, you know, they rend and roar at me. You know, it's written from the perspective of the scapegoat. Because usually how the scapegoat mechanism works is we all have to agree that the, the outsider the excluded one really deserves to be out, really deserves to be excluded. You know, we, we have to make ourselves believe that these Muslims really are too dangerous or, you know, this kid in the schoolyard really is, you know, beyond the pale or whatever. But the minute... Um, a, a, but what happens it, beginning in the Hebrew scriptures is the inkling that the scapegoat might be innocent. The scapegoat might just be arbitrarily chosen. You know, it's got nothing to do with their merit or desert. They just happen to be the person who got fixed on. And, and, and you get that perspective of the victim in some of the Psalms. You get it a bit in, um, you get it in Isaiah, the suffering servant passages. Um, and then, you know, on this account of things, you know, Jesus is the full expression of that. But I think you can see that insight um, in other traditions. I don't know the Muslim tradition very well at all. I know a little bit more about the Buddhist tradition, but there are, you know, there are ways in which the compassion, solidarity with the least, that, that's there. So it's not alien, I think, to other traditions either. But maybe, um, I guess, from a Christian perspective, we would say, well, in Jesus, this is fully lived out in a human life consistently, and it becomes not just a model, but but an empowerment for our life um, to live in that same way. Uh, we are sent to baptise and spread the gospel to the whole world, and yet we have, in the Christian missions, damaged the wisdom of indigenous peoples. We are now on our journey back to reality, to see God as God is, aside from our constructed images. Perhaps it will be that white man comes to see their God is the same God as Chief Seattle expressed in his speech. Please would you comment on the nature of how we are sent out to baptise so as not to colonise other cultures and their ways of being. Yeah, again, brilliant. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think this does follow on from what I was just saying. So, so on the account that I just gave, um, and Alison says this, there's a sense in which Christianity, uh, the... the, the the Jesus movement is the subversion of 
religiosity. Because most religiosity, most religion, is about inventing a God who is kind of like us <laughs> and who justifies us. My God, not your God. So God becomes caught up, or you know, the name God comes caught up in our tribal, in our tribal identity over against other people. Um, and, and this is a God in whose name we are then justified imposing ourselves over the top of other people's identities. And we might think we're saving them or we might think we're doing them good, but really what we're doing is just dominating. And not even noticing, as, as this question suggests, not even hearing what's there in the tradition that we're, you know, we're stomping over the top of. But that God, that God of, um, that dominating God is not um, the God who is known to us in the crucified one, you know, the one who is cast out of the earth. Like part of, part of what you start to notice in, in, in the scriptures is that God is always just on the verge of going out of the world, <laughs> being cast out of the world. And, you, and, and the, 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 the Christmas stories talk about this. You know, there was no room for him. Um, he's, he, he has to leave for Egypt. He, um, you know, the people preferred darkness rather than light. There's all these ways in which the scripture writers kind of alert us to this fact that when God comes into the world, we actually don't like it very much and we'd rather... You know, <laughs> we squeeze it out in one way or another. So if, if God is kind of always on the edge, on the periphery, um, on the verge of being, you know, vulnerable to being cast out, then that's not the same God who comes and thumps people over the head with a Bible and forces them to convert. <laughs> um, so, so I think we're, we're also recognising the idolatry of a lot of our Christianity. Um, and that's, it's ever been so, you know, this isn't a new thing, <laughs> Twas ever thus. Um, so in terms of, uh, last night I talked about what baptism was. Baptism signifies this, our participation in in the death of Jesus, we are crucified with Christ. It's about being dispossessed of the, the dominating, egoic, tribal identity that's wanting to secure itself at the expense of other people. It's about being willing to let that go so that we simply receive our life as gift, like not something I have to secure at your expense, not something I have to kind of defend at all costs. I receive it as gift. And what's liberating about that is then, I, then I'm kind of, I'm free to live. It's like I'm not threatened. I'm, I, I'm, I'm set free to listen, to 
live out the life that's given to me to live, to serve in the ways it's given to me to serve, to rejoice. You know, like that's that's the life. That's life. In, I mean, I know it sounds like, oh, yeah, right, but I've got this husband and I've got, you know. It's, <laughs> it's in, in practice, <laughs> it's, of course, we suffer and it's, it's, um, it, it's not all joy and roses and all of that. But at this deep level, there's this, we can remind ourselves that, that again, God is for us. Like we're not supposed to be frightened. We're not supposed to be anxious for our lives. So once that's happened, once we've undergone the death of the self that's having to kind of hold on really tight in case someone you know, takes its life or its identity or its goodness away from it, once we can just receive it, then we're also free to receive the gift that other people are. We're kind of able to be with them and not be threatened by them and maybe they see the world a bit differently but oh well how does that you know all of that kind of thing there's an there's a possibility of listening and so I think baptizing so so when Jesus says go into the world to baptize all people because of our history and because of the history of you know missionary movements from you know Charlemagne in the ninth century who offered the Visigoths a chance to convert or else he'd chop their heads off. Um, like that's part of our image of what it means to be sent into the world and baptise all people, which is a you know, disrespectful, colonising kind of thing. We think of it as baptising people so that they become good members of the church or whatever. But if baptising people being or offering the possibility of baptism is about letting people know they're loved, uh, letting people know um, they don't have to be frightened, uh, and then discovering together what life might be, well, you can understand why they thought that was good news. <laughs> but usually on the college campus when someone comes up to you and says they want to tell you the good news, you don't feel very good about that. Like you don't... <laughs> <laughs> it's not gonna, it's not feeling very good at this point so i think it's the kind of recapturing what is what is our news news of and it's <laughs> and it's not about you know membership of our club as opposed to your club which is a crap club and you should give it up it's it's not about that <laughs> um so i think it's getting back in touch with really what is what are we sent to do which is about liberation it is about you know shared humanity it is about it is about real friendship and then there's a hell of a lot that our culture as a you know because again christian culture western culture kind of mushed together but there's a lot that our culture needs to learn from the wisdom of indigenous peoples and for uh, and a continuing connection to the earth that we in western culture have lost um, I was at a thing in gathering in Central Australia last year and for the first time in my life, kind of shameful to say, but was really was able to spend some time with Aboriginal um, elders speaking about their connection to, to the <coughs> land in Central Australia, which is profound. And, it, and, and feeling that this wisdom is so desperately what we need in our current ecological crisis and everything else. Um, and the, I, I thought the line that came to me, because 
um, even more than in New Zealand, the white relationship to Indigenous Australians has been appalling, you know, has been a, a terrible um, legacy of dismissal and disrespect and, and, and inattention. Um, and uh, the line came to me, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And I wondered if that's with we, you know, and see, this is who Christ is. Christ is the stone the builders rejected. Wherever that's happening, there is Christ. So I think it's true. I think I, I, I think there's a whole new thing to be opened up here. Um, and it is actually the heart of the gospel. It's just that we keep forgetting that. Could, could I just make a, a mention there? Just when I came to New Zealand 30 odd years ago, my life was turned upside down just because of Easter mm. and autumn and singing all these <laughs> spring songs. And, mm. and so it made me really question. Mm. Mm. Really question. Mm. Hmm. I don't think they do that today at the missionaries camp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's right. It's, and, you know, they were doing their best and of their time and all of that. Um, but. We didn't quite hear that. Could you turn around and face us and say it again? Sorry? They didn't hear you. Oh. Um, I just said, um, coming from the Northern Hemisphere, 50-odd years ago, my life was turned upside down because Christmas, 25th of December, followed the pagan Celtic rite, and it was in the winter. And we sing spring songs in autumn hymns that don't relate to us. For and Easter. So I had to question my Catholicism and my spirituality very deeply. And I'm still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that that's the end of the written down questions. So um, maybe we could just take a few minutes if, if anyone, if there's anything else that you would like to ask or... Anne. I'm just wondering whether you could recommend a book by James Allison. Uh, yes. Many perhaps, I suppose. Yeah, he's written a lot um, and people... <coughs> sometimes find him quite quite dense um, but I think a really good one to start with is his book called Faith Beyond Resentment which is it's a book but it's a it's a series of discrete chapters which were originally given as talks so you can kind of read one at a time and Faith Beyond Resentment Is it one else or two else? <coughs> Alison, no, one. Yeah, one, I think. Yeah, James Allison. Uh, the subtitle of that book is Fragments Catholic and Gay. So he's, he's a gay man. He was a priest. He's left the priesthood. He's a theologian. Well, he hasn't left the priesthood. He's just been put to the edges, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> one of those edges where God is. Um, and, you know, part of it is his own experience of, of undergoing that, that very mechanism. And, um, so, yeah, so it's very... 
A-L-I-S-O-N. Um, <laughs> uh, another book of his, the, the one that I read first that was really profoundly significant for me was, is called Knowing Jesus. And what was helpful for me, it, you know, as someone who, who struggled with what does that mean to, to know Jesus and often when that question is asked in a certain spirit, you know, do you know Jesus? Like, mm, I, don't, I don't know, do I? You know? <laughs> um, he, he really helps with that. <laughs> so if that is a, a question for you or a wondering, then I'd recommend knowing Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um, we seem to be living in a time of super egoic male personalities. <laughs> <laughs> In spite of putting women down and making women feel bad, um, as well as the others, mm. very dualistic, mm. yeah, dualistic behaviour. Mm. Um, can you show us a way through this? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes, follow me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, look, uh, it's, it, it's depressing. <laughs> um, you know, so obviously we're talking about Trump, um, but... Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, there are ripples of that we can see in other places. Um, I'm sure certainly ripples of what he's tapping into, which is is the sense of uh, well rage at some level. Um, um, born of disempowerment, or at least a story about disempowerment. I'm not entirely convinced the disempower. You know, so that's interesting. Um, people feeling that they're victims, at least. Um, and, and then what that gives rise to is exactly this kind of scapegoat phenomenon. It's kind of like, I feel bad. How are we going to feel better? Right, what we need to do is get rid of the Mexicans and the Muslims and the, you know, the gays and the women and the UN and, um, you know, pretty much. <laughs> um, so there, you can see how this scapegoating behaviour ratchets up and how dangerous it is because it connects to a mob, uh, you know, a mob mentality. And in the end, then nobody knows why they're doing anything. Um, so, yeah, what's that about? I mean, there are all kinds of analyses, I guess, that... that need to happen and are valid, um, including an analysis of, of um, economic policy in, in our kinds of cultures since the 80s, you know, which 
that whole trickle down economics thing and the the way that didn't trickle down and you know so and and the the loss of a social compact so that so that everything becomes a business rather than a a broader discourse about what's the common good and so a hospital is now a business a university is a business when really is that is that the conceptual framework for those enterprises and what do we lose by you know so there's a big discussion about all of that and the the, the actual impacts of that on people's lives and their sense that the political system is now not working for them but is in some collusion with these other interests and all of that's part of it i guess particularly speaking about trump one of the things that's um distressing is that from an adult development point of view he operates at a very low level of development <laughs> um, um, and, and I, I recently came across a thing called adult development theory in which a New Zealand woman actually is very prominent uh, Jennifer Garvey Berger her name is um, and there are sort of four levels of adult development that she kind of postulates and the lowest level is is really still at the kind of um, almost magical thinking, um, like the, the ego, like everything is refracted through the prism of the ego. Mm -hmm. um, like a three-year-old, I, I say it and it's so, and then I say something different and, oh, that's so. And, you know, that we seem to be seeing that on Twitter and then, <laughs> you know, which is kind of... And then there's a level which, you know probably the bulk of the population are at. Um, so this is just another model or framework, but it can be quite helpful, um, uh, 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 that a socialised self. So we're, we're people who have internalised some, some social values, values of authority, values of our society, and think that they're our values, and in many ways, you know, they are. So, you know, good church people are so, often socialised selves, you know, internalise some values and live out of that. Then there's, in the, in the journey, the human journey towards transformation, then, then there's something called a self-authoring self. Um, and that's someone who's beginning to be able to engage a bit critically with their inherited or internalised values. Doesn't necessarily throw them all out, but is able to say, oh, okay, well, I wonder where that's come from, or do I really believe that anymore, or does that, you know, does that ring true with my experience? And a beginning, instead of just absorbing the values of the society to be able to engage with them and to find their own level with that and in a sense take a bit more responsibility for who they are and how they think and then and then there's the transforming self who who is kind of in this in a, a I think what Benedict would call a process of continuous conversion like you know continuously being willing to let something go and open up to the deeper life um, Trump's obviously fairly low <laughs> in the spectrum, <laughs> and that is that it's a concern that that it, it, that such a person can rise to such a position without being seen through, or even if they are seen through, somehow that doesn't matter. Uh, said, look, we're so angry, we don't care anymore. We're just going to put him in. We're going to put the bull in the china shop and see what falls out. You know. Uh, so I don't know what the response. I guess is just that we are responsible for being on this journey of maturation ourselves, um, continuing to mature, continuing 
to, and in doing that, we become resources for and witnesses to other people of this journey. Um, and because it can be a painful journey, people need resources. They need people that they can trust to speak to about it. Um, when they're in the process of letting go some of the inherited values, that can be very threatening. And and they'll sniff out. They'll sniff you out if they sense that you're you're doing the journey. You're you're doing that work. Um, and as a society, which there seems to be a pressure to regress. So, you know, at least part of it must be we're not to regress along with it. You know, and we're to keep keep inviting people into the more complex. The thing about about the different levels is there are also levels of being able to handle complexity and the lower the level of development the less complexity you can handle um, which again is a concern in the political <laughs> context um, but but we need to be able to be increasing our capacity to handle complexity kind of almost paradoxically by a, a radical self-simplification um, yeah, Shame. Jennifer Garvey Berger. I think the Berger is B E R G E R. Sharon. Um, Sarah, could you just um, say a little more about being a in regards to children or the age? nature of your um, gatherings on Saturday night. I understand about the monthly gathering for children, which sounds amazing. Yeah. I'm just interested to know where that fits in on the Saturday evening gatherings. And, and also, um, a baptism, if that's happening with the benefit, just with how that works. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Saturday night service, um, isn't that family friendly, to be honest. Um, it's at six o'clock on a Saturday night, which is not a good time for families with small children. Um, and there is 15 minutes of silence. Um, there are some children who come uh, with their parents, um, but not many. And the service isn't geared to be a family service. Um, so. That's just how it is at the moment. Um, um, we have spoken, so the children who come to Kaleidoscope, which is what we call the contemplative children's afternoon, they, they um, I mentioned Karina, who's the woman whose inspiration this was and who began it, who's a teacher. And a lot of the families who come, come because they knew her at, through her teaching. And so there's that, relationship of trust and um, none of those families come to Benedictus the parents don't come to Benedictus so it is a it's like a, 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 a you know a separate kind of gathering and we have talked about and I think this year we will at least a few times during the year offer um, that Karina might do something for children at that six o'clock slot in another you know not in the service, but in the nearby parish centre, so that if any parents who would like to come to Benedictus and taste it, 
can come and not have to worry about if their kids will like it or if it's babysitting or stuff like that. So really, yeah, so that's what we've done. Um, in terms of other ages, it's, our, I guess like all communities, we have fewer in the early adult um, kind of in up to into their 30s. We do have two or three who might come um, on a semi-regular basis, but the majority of the people who come to Benedictus would be um, kind of 40s, 50s onwards. Um, and uh, I, I think that's partly the nature of contemplative community. So uh, it's probably like this for you too. I come out of a diocesan context which is obsessed with getting young families to church. Um, and, oh, I'm so bored with that. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I don't think that there's something to offer and it's important to create that space and welcome and but so often that conversation comes out of anxiety about well if they don't come we won't exist in 10 years time and it's like well that's all about us <laughs> it's not really about serving <laughs> serving them um, and and having that bigger inquiry about what actually would be life-giving for these families um, kaleidoscope is life-giving for these families because the children are love it and and they're good and the and the parents have two and a half hours to themselves on a Saturday after, Sunday afternoon when in their hugely hectic working life they can maybe just stop and have a bit of time for themselves. Like that's valuable, I think. That's a ministry, um, <laughs> even if they never come to Benedictus. So, and, and also, as you know, I think the contemplative is something that you tend to come to later in life you know you you kind of um so so there will always be people discovering contemplation in their 30s and 40s and 50s and so it's not going to die out just when we all die because there will be people who you know so i mean i exaggerate my uh, my frustration with the convert but it's just so over the top that i i think we need to kind of balance it out a little bit um did that answer sharon your question uh so, oh, the baptism. I knew there was a bit that I had. Thank you. Um, look, we, I haven't been asked to baptise anybody yet through Benedictus. Um, so, my licence is to the Anglican bishop. So, that's in terms of, a, of pastoral services, that's what I'm licensed to offer. So I guess that's what I would offer. Um, but it, that can also be adapted, that service, you know, the liturgy can be adapted appropriately. I, I have done two Benedictus weddings, um, and the most recent one was last Saturday um, of an 80-year-old and a 91-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> so you see... See, contemplation is a really good thing. <laughs> so, so, you know, so that was lovely. And, and, and although, you know, like I do it under my marriage celebrant license, license as an Anglican, I mean, the service was, you know, it had some Benedictus elements in it. We had more silence and we, you know, we had different blessings and stuff like that. But, yeah, I haven't, I haven't really had to face the baptism question yet. <laughs> Well, okay, yeah, yeah, we're finishing. Okay, so 
Um, what I thought we might do just to, to close, um, close my bit and then uh, Vincent's going to do some thank yous. Um, <coughs> many of you have spoken to me and been very generous in your encouragement and your feedback and thank you for that. Um, I think sometimes, you know, over the course of a retreat, quite a lot can happen, can move through different spaces, um, left with a, a range of things. So what I'd like to invite you to do is maybe you might like to just close your eyes and just take a moment to let yourself be present to um, your own journey through this retreat. You know, you might remember when we began, where you were at or what was present to you. <coughs> And then on that first day, the talk was about faith as a, as a kind of background context. And there were all the other elements, the movement, the, the liturgies. And then yesterday, we spoke about discernment. continued in the silence maybe you're present to an image that expresses something of your experience or what you think what, what you'll be taking away with you. Maybe there's an image or a word, phrase. Maybe a question. Or maybe a new conviction. these things that the spirit has been working in you. And I'd like to just offer you the opportunity, if you would like to do this, to just turn to the, the person next to you or one or two people around you in groups of two or three. And if you feel comfortable and would like to, you might like just to share that image or word or phrase or conviction, question. You don't have to go into any details if you don't want to. You don't have time, actually. <laughs> but just sometimes it can help us really um, begin to integrate what's happened by speaking it into the listening of another just invite you to be that listening for each other and as you wish just to share briefly what you're taking away. I've just got a 
few minutes, five mi- or so minutes for that. So, um,
so um, I might just wind this up now. So folks, um, I might invite you just to finish up those conversations. So just, I wanted to thank you. Uh, thank you for um, your, your listening, your deep listening, um, for your doing your work over this time and, and uh, for your generosity um, of spirit. Um, it really has been a pleasure to be with you and, um, you know, I pray blessings on you as, as you go. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, now just, I've just had a phone call come in to say that um, 5105 Susan Jamison. Susan here? She's gone. You've got the key. You've got the key. Great, that's what it was about. And Gabriel? Gabriel here? Gabriel, you have left a basket in 5102. It'll be put into the uh, lounge, the dining room. Okay. Thank you very much. Right, well, an event like this uh, can't end without uh, a whole heap of thank yous. We don't need my voice. Let me just turn this off. Um, uh, because it, it takes quite a lot to put together. It takes many, many months to put together. In fact, uh, the genesis of this event was two years ago at the John Main Seminar when I asked uh, Lawrence Freeman uh, who he would recommend as someone to lead the next New Zealand retreat. And without a moment's hesitation, he recommended Sarah, and you can see why. <laughs> so I shall report back to Lawrence that we were not disappointed. How do you pronounce Sarah's surname? Bachelard. 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 Yeah. Okay. So, my list of thank yous includes Graham. Graham's our first aid man. Hopefully, you haven't been too busy. No, we've been remarkably healthy. Good. That's good. So, I like to hear. To Ingrid and Michael for your exercise workshops, which were well attended. Thank you very much. To Shirley and Kathy, who provided a refuge for those people who found it hard to be silent by running their bookshop. Uh, another thank you um, to Rita for the flowers. They're, they're just stunning. Of course, the organising committee, uh, Linda was the chief organiser. Where are you, Linda? Linda, Linda, Linda. Yeah. Just so much work goes into this, particularly um, email work and organising. It's uh, we're very lucky to have uh, Linda as part of the team uh, here. Over over the few days, she's been very ably assisted by Charmaine and Damien, who have really provided a lot of support. Most of it under the radar. Thank you to both to Charmaine. And Damien. Uh, and to uh, Peter for leading our liturgies. We. I don't think we could do it without you, Peter. We, we're so attuned to your voice <laughs> and your leadership in your team. Uh, 
Um, now, Jane, Jane here, Jane, 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 Hall. Jane, what, you wanted to come up and talk very briefly about oblates, did you? Yes, you come on up and do that. Clearly, 
the contemplative life is learning um, how to honour the Mary in us as well as the Martha, these two uh, equal parts of equal importance, the active and the contemplative in our lives. But also, our meditation practice teaches us that it is the contemplative that underlies everything. It is the source, as Sarah said, of a good active life. It grounds our active life. Monastic communities have existed um, really, as I understand it, just to uh, have lived in community. People call to this, live in community, balancing this contemplative and active life. And as we know, the active life never has to fight for life, especially in our, our world. We all have to be active. We're supposed to be doing, producing, consuming, all the rest of it. But we have had the blessing and the grace to see that we must honour the Mary in us as well as the Martha, and we have to fight for it in our society. And to live the oblate life is to have the, the guidance of a, a, a monastic approach to this. Monastic life is just an, one interpretation of the Christ life. It's one way of doing it. What do we do? Okay, so I won't go into the details. Uh, don't be frightened. It's not, it's like meditation. It, it's a discipline and uh, therefore it's not easy, but it's gentle and it's reasonable and it's practical um, and it's just something for me, I've learned that I needed this contemplative, I learned this through meditation, learned to honour and to try and develop this, in community, this contemplative side of my nature. And I had all these other bits of my life which seemed to be all doing their own thing and weren't connected and I had a profound sense, still have of course, of a lack of integrity in me. I couldn't claim uh, any sort of wholeness, but it worried me because we want to try best we can, get the bits all moving in the same direction, connecting up. And the oblate journey in the Benedictine rule and the Benedictine way, I have found a guide to beginning to get everything together, seeing that it is together, and then being able to move on in that spirit. Well, what have I forgotten to say? We, we, and we, we meet. This is essentially a community. So we, we have soul meetings in which we, we get together to share our journey and to help each other on the way. Just exactly in the same spirit, really, as our weekly meditation groups. Now, um, the person, if you're interested in this, um, and at the beginning you're just asking about it, I wonder if this might be for me, or what, what's it all about anyway? Um, the person to get in touch with is dear Hugh McLaughlin, who will greet you with all his Irish charm. He's um, in Wellington, and his contact details are all on the back of each national newsletter. Otherwise, I have them with me if you want to get them from me. And if you want to talk immediately to somebody about this oblate journey, you've got quite a range of people. Thank you very much. <laughs> I just thought it might be interesting to know what the word comes from, oblate. It's not 
oblation is an offering. Mm -hmm. And so we have offered ourselves to think that's all. I Right, we've now come to that part of, uh, uh, of the um, event, which is just about close, to close, where we must honour uh, our wonderful guest speaker, uh, retreat leader, theologian, Sarah. Uh, Sarah, there are many different ways that you can be thanked. Uh, none of them really will suffice for what you've given us and you've given of yourself over the last few days, but uh, we will do them uh, humbly and sincerely, and we will start we thought we would start by going to the heart of the retreat, which is all these beautiful people here, and ask one of them to come up and give a vote of thanks. And that task has been taken up by Janet. Janet Tuck. Thank you, Janet. Gosh, so hard to know where to start, isn't it? I took notes because I thought when you're thanking someone like Sarah, who's so skilled at, yeah, you can, you can, and then I can talk to you directly. So, so skilled at language and the linguistics, it's quite good to have notes. Look, um, how do you say thank you to somebody like Sarah? As I was, um, I was reminded of it last weekend when I was talking to a 26-year-old young man who was around at our house doing some stuff. I was telling him, trying to explain to him what retreat was like and what we did. And when I got to the part and said, oh, oh, it's largely silent, he had this horrified look on his face and said, how do you do that? <laughs> I don't know if I can keep quiet for an hour, let alone that many days, how do you do it? And I just laughed, I thought, yeah, that's typical from a young person. But as I reflect on retreat, I have a sense that we are all coming from different reasons. But we all, I think, have a sense of being called to or called into something in a sense of wanting to be with God with what we do. And um, when I explained to this young man what we were doing, I completely ignored the fact that we had a facilitator. I didn't mention it anywhere. <laughs> and the funny thing is, when I thought about why I come to retreat, it often has nothing to do with who's leading or facilitating. It's everything to do with that sense of being drawn and being called into something. But now I know about Sarah. And had I known before, I think I would have told this young man in quite glowing terms about what, what I was going to get apart from the silence and stuff, because we've all been really blessed, I think, and we've all been touched from her this week. Um, you've done something quite unique for all of us. Many of us in the room here have been on quite long and um, well, quite extended spiritual journeys throughout our lives. And if you're like me, you've read a lot. You've heard a lot, you've probably heard some of the best teachers and the best thinkers around, but, um, and it's sort of hard to surprise us when we, we sort of come from that sort of perspective and background and journey, but you have packaged your thoughts and ideas about that contemplation, faith and the act of life in a way that for me and for many of you has a real freshness about it. You've relanguaged the conversation for us, I think, and invited us to look at it differently and in quite a fresh way, and that's been, well, it's been a challenge. And I said, uh, you know, it's deeply interesting, but it's profoundly challenging. I mean, that last talk, I'm going to go away and be thinking about that, you know, all the next week easily and beyond that. Um, but you've packaged it in a way that's fresh, but it's also the sort of a whimsical aspect, the way you've delivered it, and it's very accessible. So on both counts, we're, we're very grateful to you, Sarah. Um, we take away much. And just to say to you, you have discerned well on our behalf, to quote one of your things. You have worked out what was important for us to receive, and I think we recognise that and validate that within you. 
but you've also communicated God to us, which is your vocation, which you identified so I think we would like to validate that within you in terms of your giftedness and skill we are deeply grateful to you and on behalf of all of the people here we've got a wee gift for you but let's just give her a round of applause thank you Australia Day. <laughs> but they don't sing. <laughs> so thank you. What a gift. Thank you. 